Call me calloused, call me cold. You're italic, I'm in bold. Call me cocky, watch your tone. You better love me, cause you're just a clown. By the way, you've been uninvited, cause all you say. Same things I did. Big guy trying to cut my manner. Watch your back when you can't watch my. Great rendition. Great cover by this young man. For a song called Copycat. Copycat. That's a. Here's <laughs> a copycat. Now, I wanted to bring attention to something uh, that a lot of people have been talking about. So I thought, hey, why not chime in since, you know. It's all about, you know, what you give is what you get. Now, first, let's listen to the message. This isn't a case of somebody made a mistake, okay? This is legit. Somebody went to our website, copied the entire article, pasted it into their own, published it, replete with advertising all over, and passed it off as though they did it. It's disgusting. It is absolutely one of the worst things that you could potentially ever do in journalism. We bust our asses to do good investigative journalism for you. I pay a salary to the person who wrote that column. And then I get shit when I ask for people to voluntarily contribute while Resist the Mainstream is making bank off of our work. It's wrong on so many levels. Please support actual journalism with ethics and morals and integrity like at Uncover DC. Uncoverdc.com slash support or give, send, go. Yeah, okay. So integrity. What she's saying is correct. There's a lot of people that take other people's articles and they publish them. And I see it. Yeah, they did do that to her. I mean, you know who resists the mainstream is. So they took the stuff from Millie. They take all my stuff all the time. But, you know, it's no big deal. It's Tracy Bean. So we all have to talk about it. So let's talk about it. It's bullshit because this is recompense. See, back in 2019, I had published an article in October, a couple of them actually, and put them up. And then I did a secondary article after that. Anyway, besides the fact, it was maybe a couple days before, but it was Brian Cates who took my article because he's like, this is a shitty site. No one's reading it. I'll just take it, revamp it, make it mine. And she went to bat for him. And I was like, I don't see how you can misconstrue this. This is like way before it was even published and it was published on my site. So, you know, when you when you sit there and you talk about things that are unfair, you can't talk about things that are unfair, you know, just because they apply to you and they shouldn't apply to other people because other people aren't. What what did she call it? She busts her ass. Did she bust her ass about Peter Henderson? Because I broke that story a year and a half ago and she put it up there like it was fucking news. And it wasn't even the real story. It was the bullshit story of him trying to be a race car driver. Like nobody gives a shit. What she should have been talking about is, holy shit, he was vice president and he was communicating with German intelligence service. Now that's a story. The fact that he wants to be a race car driver or calls it like that, it's so fucking dumb. So integrity, garbage, inquire, real stuff. I mean, whatever. Point is, this is a problem. People take my stuff all the time and they revamp it and make it their own because here's how they see it. They see themselves as more important, more visible, so they'll take your stuff. See, that's how it works, Tracy. People that think that they're more important than other people take other people's shit and they do it. What they did to her is wrong. 
and she pays someone to write the article, whatever it is. I know that other uh, other places, I kid you not, and I, I will not say, but big article places pay people like $25 for an article. I'm not saying that's what Tracy pays. I'm telling you what the mainstream does. I kid you not. Because they're like, you're getting your name in our shit, so whatever. Um, this is why I was never paid by anyone to put articles out because you're supposed to do it. Um, and then, you know, you'll, you'll, God will reward you if you're doing good work. That's basically it. And I got to sell my shit for 25 bucks. But anyway, what happened to her is wrong. They stole the article that she had published and then they put it on there just as hers. Right. But the thing is, this has happened before Tracy, your people were getting that dildo was guilty of it and you stood up for the dildo. And not only that, you're not really breaking stories. So, you know, tough. You don't like it. I, I, I call it like it is. I, I don't play backstabbing games. I don't, you know, dance around or whatever. If I make a mistake, I'll freaking say it. I'm the first one to call myself out. Okay. But, you know, truth is truth. And, and that's what it is. And this is why I have a problem. And also because she was like, you work for Brennan. So that's why I wasn't going to report on anything. <laughs> so I guess you can't report on shit. Right. Because this is the way it is. See, this is what happens. You can't pick and choose and say, I'm going to do some journalism as long as it doesn't interfere with that, because then it's giving it credibility. It is a person. It's me. Right. Right. And I've been 100 percent on point. So no matter how much you scream and shout thinking you're credible because you, you know, think you are. You know, I'm not a paid asset. That's it. I'm not going to add to that. So anyway. Further along in this uh, whole thing, we're seeing a lot of things happening. Uh, we had Congress, Congress today. They had a um, House performance session. Apparently, they're going to be uh, coming back on Tuesday, July twelfth, and something on July seventh. I want you guys to hear it um, so you can see what Congress is saying themselves. Let's just jump right into it. The House will be in order. The chair lays before the House a communication from the Speaker. The Speaker's Rooms, Washington, D.C., July 5th, 2022. I hereby appoint the Honorable Jamie Raskin to act as Speaker pro tempore on this day. Signed, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House of Representatives. A prayer will be offered by the guest chaplain, Reverend John Kellogg, Christ. Church, Washington, Paris. The Speaker's Rooms, Washington, D.C., July 5th, 2022. I hereby appoint the Honorable Jamie Raskin to act as Speaker pro tempore on this day. Signed, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House of Representatives. A prayer will be offered by the guest chaplain, Reverend John Kellogg, Christ Church, Washington, Paris, Parish, Washington, D.C. Let us pray. O God, the fountain of wisdom, whose will is good and gracious and whose law is truth, we beseech you so to guide and bless our representatives in Congress that they may enact such laws as shall please you to the glory of your name and the welfare of this people. Amen. Pursuant to Section 11A of House Resolution 188, the Journal of the Last Day's Proceedings is approved. The chair will lead the House in the Pledge of Allegiance. 
to the flag of the United States of America, and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Pursuant to Section 11B of House Resolution 188, the House stands adjourned until noon on Thursday, July 7th, 2022. Lawmakers are on a two-week two recess. So, so. For legislative work on Tuesday, July 12th. So this is weird. So July 7th, they're meeting back. That's number one. But they're voting July 12th. Number two, they waltz in with this ritualistic staff, right? And they do this whole freaking ritual. They have prayer, which they don't want. They also say the Pledge of Allegiance, which they don't want. These are the people that are supposedly shitting all over religion, the Constitution, the Pledge of Allegiance, but yet they follow those things. It was just really bizarre. And then Nancy was missing. And oh, by by the way, so this morning in conversation, I was having a conversation with someone and they were like, hey, are you are you the green hand or are you just the fire hand? I'm like, what? I don't understand. So they were associating me with another group of people. I said, they're, they're great people, smart people, technically savvy people, but it's not me. I said, so funny because here we are talking about Pelosi this past week and you know, they're, they posted a song, the song you were listening to while you were working, you know, because I was working on my case and I was listening to music and they shared a very nice rendition. You should share it. And so they sent it to me. It's so weird. It's about Pelosi and it's the song that I was listening to, but a cover, of course. Take a listen. Fall out of hope One more bad dream Could bring a fall When I'm far from home Don't call me on the phone To tell me you're alone It's easy to deceive Easy to tease, but hard to get released. Eyes within a face. Eyes within a face. Your eyes without a face. You got no human grace. I spend so much time believing in the lies to keep the dream alive. Now it makes me sad, makes me mad at truth. Love and what was you? Oh, 
you've embraced Your eyes are gonna face following Entheos, you should. It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. You have the chance to break a genitorial curse established long before Franklin Thomas. Your children may be too far gone. Hold on. Let me read that. Too far gone, but your grandchildren can still have bright futures if you change directions. What will you choose? Come clean, Nancy. Luke fifteen one seven. If you're not following them, you should. And those means within God. Pretty fascinating, concise, and very approachable video. And you know why? So I was having this thought yesterday. So I've uh, I've said that um, physiognomy is considered unethical. And what you were seeing on the screen were indicators from alternative medicine and or physiognomy. Now, I was trained in physiognomy. And so yesterday, maybe it's because I had two Coronas. You know, I get drunk really easy. But I was watching this really old movie that had um, Reese Witherspoon and Mark Ruffalo in it. And so I was watching this movie and all, and even though it was a sweet movie about some chick in a coma and it was like, you know, heartfelt love rom-com, I don't know, however you want to put it. Um, I couldn't stop focusing on Mark Ruffalo's face, right? And this goes back to something that I'm pretty sure all of you might even just, I just want you to think about this. Think about all the people you can categorize. Now, how do I say this? So think of all the people that have the speech enunciation and facial movements of Mark Ruffalo, which are very specific. 
think of celebrities. Take your Kanye, your Beyonce's, your Billie Eilish's, right? And then find average people that look like them. What you'll see is that they share a lot of similar traits. Like people with specific noses are, you know, homewreckers. Homewreckers. Um, people that, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, I'm like nearing 45. I have practically no wrinkles, especially around my mouth, considering I'm a smoker. People are like, that's not possible. And I was like, well, the wrinkles, yes, repetitive motion or laughing does it, but they actually represent something completely different. People that have contempt for other people or that are bitter, that hold grudges, they have wrinkles around there, right? Every single portion of your body down to your fingers represents you, the inner you, the inner workings of your software. (sighs) I know there's phenotypic and uh, genetically uh, there's two different types of DNA that we have, I guess, the one that you can see and the one you can't see. Let's put it that way. Phenotypic is like the qualities that you have, uh, like the color of your hair, your eyes, your shape, but it also represents, um, you know, what you are. Think of it this way when they cast people for shows and movies, right? Um, they cast them so perfectly that if they want you to hate, hate the villain, they'll make sure they cast the right one. And you're like, damn, all the villains kind of look the same. All of these look the same. Uh, you know, these are um, important things to know, I guess. In your mind, I want you to see some stranger that you walk by today. And think what kind of category of people is it, you know, Joe's or John's or Sally's or, you know, or Katie's like think in your mind, not only, and and I'm saying not just the names, right? I'm saying just categorize them. You'll see that it feels that everyone on this by in the biodome that we're at now all seem to have very similar Facial structures. Think of Pelosi. What does she remind you of? What kind of character in a movie? Then think of someone in your life. Do they fall into that character? Like Karens, they all look the same. They get that weird haircut and they talk the same, right? Um, You know, these are all very specific categories. I, I, I would like for you to kind of think about it, you know, and when I was talking about the wrinkles, I, I flipped over wrinkle shaming. No, it's showing your inside. You're inside the lines on your face show your inside. If you had been holding grudges most of your life, if you're bitter, you will have wrinkles around your mouth more. You know, if you are betrayed more, you will have natural frown. You know, there are certain things that you cannot change that are maps of your internal. Okay. And that's what I've been trying to say about physiognomy. Uh, You know, my dad, when I was a kid, um, I remember he picked me up after uh, a thing that I had at St. John's. Um. And he took me to a place to get something to eat. 
And so I sparked up a conversation with some random person. And my dad was just watching me. He's like, you know, you're really social for someone that doesn't like people. (laughs) And um, I said, well, you know, he had some really good information on how they make the sushi sheet dry. And I wanted to ask how they dehydrate it and how they keep it like this. And my dad was like, you know, it's really scary. You're not even 10 yet. And yet you can buy and sell a person 50 times within the first second. And (laughs) I didn't understand what that meant. But you can read a person simply by looking at them. And, you know, I usually tend to avoid doing things like that because then that creates a bias, a bias of actual knowledge that I don't want to apply because the inside can always change, right? Um, your inside, your thoughts, your heart can always be changed. If you meet someone and they're evil, right? You, you hope for the best. Some you just can't go. But when you meet someone that you know is possible of good and you, and you sh- stroke that side of the pussycat, you're like, oh, look, nice kitty, kitty. And you pet that side of the good and the rewards of good and everything. But if they innately are so broken, so harmed as a human being, that they will totally take that out of the context and it's all about them again. And you knew that because their body tells you that. Again, it is bias because you know, when I interact with people that I um, don't expect to have deep interactions with, I will obviously formulate my um, uh, my judgment based on what their DNA is telling me. Your DNA changes, right? And therefore you change. I know people that are palm readers will tell you that your hand constantly evolves. One hand always changes, they say, right? So, again, physiognomy is not allowed to be taught, but I was actually trained in it. And um, it was it was yesterday that I, you know, more refocus on that as a little side project throughout decades, personal one. I've been trying to figure out the tribes that fall under the physiognomy because, uh it may give better insight to the um, catastrophes and and harms uh, that happen within our population. Now, one would say, why would you need that? Well, now, if you didn't believe anybody, everybody can be redeemed, then you would find uh, the genetic code that is defective, that causes uh, more, um, I would say, would be more prone to unethical behavior. Um, egotistical behavior and self-serving behavior and you would excise that from the genetic code and alter it. But I guess the best way that any life rectifies itself is by self-correction, right? Uh, Your DNA is able to self-correct itself and it has self-correcting mechanism. But if it is embedded in your DNA to be the villain, to be this, uh, you know, what would you do with that information? Would you spend more time nurturing that kind of DNA? So it comes down to figuring that out because it looks like the whole world is looking for specific people. Have you guys noticed that? So um, I, when I did that show with Millie 
And um, we were telling you about, you know, and this is 2020 before the vaccines, that they're going to be giving us papers with these vaccines. And I said that all these, you know, things that they were doing for testing were DNA harvesting party. Uh, You know, people laughed and mocked, right? But it turns out I was right again. And I really wish sometimes that I'm not so right. Only because it'll, it'll help our sanity. But let me, let me see the, um, there was a video that was posted on the chat that linked up to a Twitter that showed the ID um, being deployed. I'm trying to find that video right now. If anybody has it, it was a, let me see um, if I can search for it. Give me a second. Um, um, okay, no, not that one. Um, nope, that's not it. Um, It's like a test that you're going to do to get a QR code and all they need is a sample of your blood. Do you guys know which one I'm talking about? So apparently this new ID system kind of like clear will be your digital ID forever. And, um, you know, going to school, going to places, um, you know, you can sign up instantly because it just needs a drop of your blood. So the question is, and listen to me carefully, right? If the vaccine is to help you with COVID, okay, are you listening? If the vaccine is to help you with COVID, and let's say right now, you never got the vaccine and you don't have COVID and they take your blood, how do they know if you're vaccinated if the vaccine doesn't change your genetic makeup? I want you to think about it. How do they know if you're vaccinated if the vaccine doesn't change your genetic makeup? So then, this video that I'm still looking for (laughs) that supposedly is asking for one drop of your blood and it will check if you're COVID immune If you don't have COVID and you haven't gotten the vaccine, how can the app tell that you are not vaccinated? How do they know this? Because if there's no changes to your genetic markers, no changes to your genetic structure, no changes to anything genetically, And there are no metabolites, as they claim. And it is completely safe. How can they tell if you're vaccinated? Because as as, as I dug into this company, oh gosh darn it, and I was doing it on the fly working on things, damn it. As I was, uh, you know, looking up, looking this up on the fly, right? I just couldn't believe 
that nobody can see it. I know a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, in China, they're turning people's QR codes red. That's exactly what it said. It'll give you a red or green code to enter. It'll tell you if you can go somewhere. It'll say if you're all, you know, done and dusted. You know, this is something that you have to think about because the question is, who are they looking for? Why do they need your DNA? Because this vaccine wasn't about anything else rather than control. But also, what are they looking for? That's the question you should ask yourself. What is it they're, they're looking for? So like, for example, like I said, my own little project for, for over three decades, you know, as a kid, kind of like observant and writing down notes whenever. Same book, by the way. Um, well, the same book since 2004. But um, how do you, you know, what do you do with the data you have? Like, you know, I've sussed out a few tribes and noted a lot of people, both private and public individuals that fall under that category. Um, and some of them do have their ancestral history online. Others don't. Others are quite evident. But if I'm keeping all this, and like I said, it's genetically distinct, obviously you'd need a lot of um, genetic data. So if you find the genetic data of those that are villains, right, and evil, like, ugh, like super evil, right? You know, then what? Do you have the right to eliminate them from lineage? No, you can't. Therefore, you don't publish things like this. But it seems like they're looking for something too, because they want your your name, your identity. Oh, which by the way, they were working with Facebook on this stuff. It's so weird. Um, to um, prove who you are. And through there, they're going to know if you've been vaccinated. And I'm going to circle back to old episodes where I've talked about this before. When we talk about HIPAA, which was a bullshit mandate on top, but Gina was really important. Those ladies fought hard, right? One of them actually fell down and didn't get a rotunda, served her state like forever in a day. Nobody gave a shit when she died. She got maybe a one line mention on like the hundredth page of the New York Times. Yeah, we had a McCain rotunda. I'm just saying. That's something we should visit. Now, speaking of that, uh, you know, Canada is um, saying that they're ready, you know, they can bear the brunt of a perfect storm, you know, because, uh, you know, in Canada, they've cut the hours of hospital and emergency departments and urgent care clinics in recent weeks. And people say it's due to a surge in patient and staff shortages. I'm a little bit concerned. Is it staff shortages or an increase in patients? So if you have a staff shortage, you decrease your hours, but you have an influx of patients. Why aren't you hiring more people? What's going on? Why are they having shortages? Good question. Because this is Canada, not the U.S., where we can just assume they didn't get the vaccine or something like that. So health is a is a big question, you know, coming on the fact that we have people who are um, pushing for monkeypox. In other news also, in Siberia last week, a Russian scientist was actually um, arrested. 
And that he was arrested because he was arrested in suspicion of treason to the country of Russia. So even though he had advanced pancreatic cancer, uh, they flew him out to Moscow. Uh, the scientist's name is Kolker. Uh, he was taken to um, Lefortovo prison and um, he died yesterday. And uh, they say that it's due to his advanced pancreatic cancer, but they're filing a complaint over his detention. Uh, his family actually said that he was taken from a hospital in the Siberian city of Novosibirsk, which is one of my favorite places, by the way, Novosibirsk, uh, where he uh, was fed through a tube um, because he's that advanced in pancreatic cancer. And they flew him to Moscow by... Um, you know, escort of FSB. Uh, he was accused of uh, co corroborating and, and working with China, uh, where he had previously, you know, had lectures and done a number of things. A number of Russian scientists have been arrested and charged with treason in the recent years for um, passing sensitive materials to foreigners, including Russia, including China. So Russia is cracking down on Chinese espionage. Hmm. That's really weird, isn't it? Maybe something else is going on. Or maybe that's going on. Regardless, something's going on. And that's very interesting if you think about it. Uh, that that is, you know, um, happening. Uh, the Democrats, it seems, are really pushing hard, uh, and the Republicans, for uh, another George Floyd uh, summer of love. Uh, it was only this Sunday uh, that just passed that um, the police had released videos showing how eight officers uh, shoot, uh, you know, shot and killed, um, you know, a guy in Akron, Ohio. Apparently, um, the videos show that a gunshot was being fired from the car that this um, this person, Jalen Walker, who was shot by the police, um, shot out from. So there was a gunshot being fired from the car of the perpetrator that the police were following. And he was and he was being pursued by all these police officers. Now, at some point, he stopped his car and jumped out, crashed or something, and then he started running away from the police. The police said it appears that he was running towards officers who at the time believed he was armed. Obviously, if a gun is being shot out of a car, you can assume someone is armed. Uh, the gun was actually recovered. It was in his car. He just didn't take it with him when he ran. So um, he was actually shot 90 times. Right. So the initial autopsy showed he had 60 gunshot wounds on his body after he was pronounced dead in the parking lot. Now, here's where we go down to this. I support my police, one million percent. I support the idea that they believe that he was armed, right? And let's say I would support even the idea of shooting him once, maybe twice. But 60 shot wounds on one body. Out of 90 shots fired. That's fucked up. That's brutal murder. I really don't care what they have to say. 
How is it that he had 60 gunshot wounds in his body? 60. The autopsy showed over 60 in his body, 90 in total. I would say that they had every right to pursue him, every right to assume that he was armed. But 60 shots? Why? What was the point? He was shot approximately 90 times. And the initial autopsy showed he had 60 gunshot wounds on his body after he was pronounced dead in the parking lot. 60, I'm trying to think of 60 gunshot wounds on my body and I'm a big girl. That would be the majority of my body. I really don't care if they had every right to suspect that he had a gun. I really don't care if they believe that he was armed while he was running. Every single one of those police officers should be removed forever. Everyone that shot that gun after they used force to restrain, not massacre one body. Every single one of them should be fired and be disallowed from having weapons in their possession. This is a problem. This is a very big problem. You can justify one, two, three, maybe even four, because maybe there's four different people or maybe someone thought it didn't stick or something. But 60 holes in somebody's body, that's a really big deal. 60 damn bullet holes in one body. Now, the guy broke the law. He shot his gun from his car while he was being chased by them. He also ran away from them. I get it. I get it. I get it. But from the moment, where does it change from the moment of you defending to I would say this was kind of like an enjoyment. This seems psychotic. This is a problem. So even though I believe that, yes, he was in the wrong, yes, he was a criminal, yes, this, I want you to take a step back and think. The police did correct by using um, force because they believed that he had a gun, which is true because he sh- you could see it on the camera that he shot his gun out of the car, Right. And it doesn't matter if he would have been dead or not. Say they shot him once and he died. They still had every right to shoot at him because they were under the impression that he was armed and dangerous, which they knew because he shot his gun out of the vehicle. Okay. It doesn't matter that he's, he's dead by one bullet, two bullets. It matters, though, if he's dead by 60. See, I don't like this whole, I'm taking this whole stance like this. I don't know what kind of training teaches you that you just rivet them, you know, but you know, you make someone Swiss cheese, right? To, to put him down. So the guy has 30 bullets, right? He's obviously not going anywhere. Why are you putting another 30 in it? The guy has one bullet. Why are you putting another 59? The guy has 59 bullets. Why put 60? See, this is the problem that we have. This is why I say, you know, he was he was being shot. And if you look at the, the video cam footage, he was shot at about 15 times. 
And then after 15 times, he was done, right? So out of those 15 times, let's take it, a you know, let's say 20 times, right? You would assume that about 15 landed, right? So out of 15, you would assume that about, you know, nine landed. That's still a lot. Which means that these police officers, there's a problem. He's on the floor and they're still shooting at him as if he's a toy. Now, you all have kids, grandkids. Say your kid goes the wrong way, decides to be a thug, gets into a vehicle, shoots at the police, runs out of the vehicle, and is a criminal, okay? You'd be okay and understand that the law says we knew that he was armed, right, and dangerous because he shot his gun out of the car. But while he was on the floor, we just kept shooting because, yeah, why not? This is fun. How would you feel? This is the problem that we have. Something's going on here and something's, you know, really wrong. And this could have been just the set off for the summer of love. We got that. And then the shooting on the 4th of July, who turns out that guy's like verified on Spotify. I was kicked off the minute I was like third in podcasts. They kicked me off real quick. I mean, they almost kicked off Joe Rogan, you know, but whatever. I digress. These are important things, right? I I would be so upset. You know, there is no justice for Jalen. Jalen broke the law, right? He was going to get killed anyway. He knew that. He shot his gun out the car, running from them. He's, he's done, even not running from them. And he had his hands up. They still would have shot him. Done, right? That was his seal death sentence right there. But 60 bullets in one body. You need to watch the footage. You need to watch the footage. It's just really bizarre how... You know, just try to fathom 60 bullets, like sit there and look at your body and say, all right, I got 60 bullet holes, wrist, forearm, you know, maybe a couple on my, you know, by my triceps, right? Let me get buttocks. Mine is pretty big. So let's put 10 in that one, right? Spine, you know, distribute it evenly. My back, another 10. That's my whole fucking body. And he was running away from the police, not towards the police, yet they were shooting him like, you know, he was target practice. And not only that, we're seeing shooting everywhere. In Denmark, right, in Copenhagen, we had a shooting. Three people were killed in a shooting in the shopping center. It was a 22-year-old guy did it. It's so weird, right? They had a shooter, an active shooter at the mall, in Copenhagen. What was the drive behind it? He just started shooting in the crowd. He didn't shoot up. He didn't shoot to the floor. He was shooting at the crowd, like random people. He was just shooting. Three of them are dead. So it's been like this whole weekend of just shooting people up, right? Then we had Highland Park, you know? Oh, he's a woke one, isn't he? Oh, I knew of him, you know, he was a verified account on Spotify. He was uh, registered. Uh, he has an IMBD profile as an actor, as a singer, as a writer. 
Um, he had a bunch of stuff online. One video he had was for this song called Toy Soldier, where there was a guy firing a gun at people and later, um, you know, like bathing in the pool of blood, um, you know, because the cop shot him after he did that. His name is um, uh, Robert Cremo the Third. And um, it's just really, really weird um, how that all unfolded, you know, just happening. You would think that Homeland Security with all this money and their fingers and everything would have avoided that. But that's not what happened. In the meantime, you know, we have... um, More deaths, and now we're going to roll into the deaths with crypto. Remember how I told you earlier on that in Novosibirsk, the scientist was actually arrested and detained for treason to Russia, and they moved him to Moscow while on his deathbed, and he died, obviously, because he was that sick, um, for giving scientific studies or something to China. Well, China was hacked, about a million entries were shown online. Citizens' names, uh, cell phone numbers, their national ID number tied with their WeChat number, birthdays, and police reports um, they have filed in the public. So, like when you file in China, that follows you on your record, right? So, a hacker actually stole, you know, close to a billion Chinese citizen information and he's selling it online. That's really crazy. That's really crazy. Considering that, you know, these this data is being sold online. And obviously, there's people that sell this online. There's middlemen that sell it online. There's um, there's uh, direct selling online, which they're everywhere. So how is it that it's being sold? I'm just saying it's a very big coincidence that we have this happen with Russia and then that. Now, um, you know, the leaked data not only has, you know, all their information, right? But it seems to be centered from Shanghai, right? Because uh, it has... um, in the leak, what I re- what I what I noticed was that there were a lot of reports of filings at Shanghai Police Department by Citizen Data. So, um, if I were someone that understands how hacks happen, considering that the majority of the uh, police filings that they revealed are from Shanghai, that means that this hack was done from a government server on the back end of WeChat, and I would most likely say that it was regional. Therefore. I'd be looking in Shanghai, but that's just me. Um, But this is actually happening. Um, The Chinese had their information uh, stolen and sold. I mean, I had mine stolen at Twitch and it was, you know, maimed. Haven't sued them yet. I mean, I had a lawyer. (laughs) Never mind. Haven't sued them yet. So, um, as we are seeing, there's a lot of um, funny business going around. Uh, you know, they're trying to say that, oh, you know, obviously with the 
Highland Park shooter, they're trying to bring Clarence Thomas into the picture saying, well, wasn't Clarence Thomas the one that had the opinion saying that we shouldn't block, you know, assault rifles in Illinois and he did the dissenting opinion? Well, then it's his fault for doing that. Another shooting that's crazy is that uh, a Palestinian-American journalist um, was shot by Israeli military. And the U.S. said that. And it seems like the killing was most likely unintentional, but they still killed a person. So that's interesting that that comes out. Um, you know, Chile's going through a new constitution. I mean, around the world, shit's just happening that you don't, you can't even imagine. Like right now, Chile is giving an overhaul to their constitution. And um, they were given... Uh, a formal draft of the proposed constitution to replace uh, what was put in place by a military dictatorship 41 years ago. So on September 4th, um, people will have the last word, says the president. But it's really weird. If you actually read their constitution, it's it m- more reads like a monarchy. It's kind of dressed in fancy words, but when you take away the fancy words, it looks like a monarchy. Hmm. Um, before we get into um, what they are looking to do, I think we should turn to learning. Um, where is it? I'm looking for it. Where is the lecture? There's this lecture. Hold on. Um, okay, so it's here. Johnson's limited stance to approach and reconstruction. This is a 10-minute lecture from Yale. Well, it's a longer one, but we're only going to listen to 10 minutes. Talks about constitutional crisis and impeachment of the president. Here we go. Now, Reconstruction is a classic story of, we've said this already, great change, great experimentation, change forced upon people in some ways, as we'll see with the 14th Amendment in a moment, and yet enough of a cadre of leadership accepted that challenge and rewrote the country you live in. And yet, of course... Like all great change, it caused a tremendous, and if there's a Newton's law of history, an opposite and equal reaction. Revolutions always cause counter-revolutions. Just count on it. Look throughout American history, just for a moment. Let's play some games of historical cycles, just for a moment. Think of the greatest, I mean, take your pick, the greatest fundamental changes in American history, whether that's in society, the law, politics, you know, massive immigration that changed the demographics of the country. Take your pick. Pick three or four of the greatest moments of change in American history. Every one of them caused a counter-change. Every revolution we have causes a counter-revolution. You grew up reaping the great changes of the civil rights revolution. You take them for granted. 
most of us do. But you also came of age in the midst of the counter-revolution against it. If you experienced the Civil War and Reconstruction in America, you experienced a revolution in many ways, perhaps even more fundamental than the one in the 60s and 70s. And you experienced very quickly its counter-revolution. Now, I just want to say that because if the more you read about Reconstruction, the more it seems to me you find serious writers on Reconstruction, historians or otherwise. And now there are a lot of popular writers and journalists who've discovered Reconstruction. We're going to read a book by one of them, Nick Lemon, who's the dean of the journalism school at Columbia, who in quite good ways fashions himself a historian. He always says he's not a real historian, blah, 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 blah. But he did pretty good research for this book on violence, uh, largely in Mississippi in 1875, but he's using it as a window into the counter-revolution you're soon to be reading about. Uh, but most people who write about this period now tend to do it in tones of a kind of a requiem. A requiem. A, 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 a tragic mode. Uh, a mode that, that is always saying what might have been, what was attempted, what was you know, aimed for, but then failed, fell apart. What high aspiration, but God, they couldn't quite do it. And it is a national requiem, in a sense. Somebody should write that symphony, the Reconstruction Symphony. We need a Beethoven for that. And he needs to be really depressed one day. But that doesn't mean it won't be great. And we won't learn from it, feel from it. All right. Back on the ground. I got in some cheap shots on Andrew Johnson before we left the other day, and they were that. Cheap shots. No apologies. Um, but Andrew Johnson is, of course, a key player here. He comes to the presidency because he's Lincoln's running mate. He enters office saying he's going to make treason odious. And some radical Republicans were quite fond initially of that approach. But it quickly, quickly changed. And here in a nutshell, you've read this now in Foner. You've all gotten up through at least the first four chapters. And by the way, I've now visited at least three sections. And I'm enjoying it. I wish they weren't. I wish they weren't just 50 minutes. You just get going and, of course, this just gets going and then you're glad we're out of here in 50 minutes, I'm sure. But back to Andrew Johnson. He was, above all else, an ardent states rightist. He did not support secession. Now, you can be a states rightist. You can believe that power should always remain in the hands of the state and still not believe in the right of secession. And he was one of those. He believed secession was political suicide for the South, and lo and behold, he got that one right. He had a strong attachment to the American Union. He was a unionist and a patriot in that sense. He had a hatred also of the Southern planter class because he didn't grow up in it. He was a poor boy who made good and a huge chip on his shoulder. He was, brilliant at a certain, he was brilliant at a certain kind of politics, which was East Tennessee stump politics. 
Andrew Johnson, it was said, could crawl up on the back of a wagon and hold an audience for two hours in East Tennessee. He didn't very easily convert that style and that talent at local stump politics, however, to the much broader world of pragmatic negotiation of Washington or the presidency. He'd held every kind of office you could hold. He'd been mayor of Greenville, Tennessee. He'd been a state uh, senator or state legislature. He'd been governor of Tennessee. He was then elected senator from Tennessee and then once again appointed the wartime governor of Tennessee by Abraham Lincoln in the midst of the war. He'd held every level of office. He'd never been anti-slavery. He saw the end of slavery as a misfortune for the South. Something that had to be accepted as a verdict of war. But Johnson had one essential slogan for his approach to Reconstruction, and if you can remember that slogan, you, in, in essence, have his point of view. The Constitution as it is, and the Union as it was. The Constitution as it is, and the Union as it was. Don't revise the Constitution. He would accept the 13th Amendment, the end of slavery, because that was part of the verdict of the war. There wasn't any way around that but he never accepted the 14th and 15th Amendments, and he worked vehemently to destroy the 14th Amendment. Or at least he worked vehemently to urge states not to ratify it. Now, his approach to Reconstruction, once in office, was essentially this. He took Lincoln's lenient plan, the 10% plan, and he went another step further in its leniency, or some say several steps further. Instead of saying he wanted 10% of the voting population of a Confederate state to take loyalty oaths, form a government, come back, and so forth, he simply converted 10% to, quote, that portion who are loyal. Any portion. Wherever maybe two or more are gathered, we'll have a loyal government that portion who are loyal. Now, he added one exception to the pardons, however. You remember people were going to get pardoned, uh, lieutenant and above, and so forth. I mean, pay attention here, pay attention. Confederate forces. He added one exception to the pardons, and this reflected a very personal interest of his. He would not pardon, he said at first at least, any Southerner who owned $20,000 worth of property or more. It seemed like a class appeal. Nobody owned $20,000. The planter class, in other words, was not going to get a pardon, no matter what they did during the war. If they were rich, they weren't going to be pardoned. Well, at least until they applied for it. And the application had to be personal to the President of the United States. Now... This set in motion in 1865 a bizarre process. Um, he promised clemency, but only after they made formal written applications about their new loyalty. And what literally occurred by the end of 1865, and especially in the first months of 1866, is lines formed at the White House in Washington, often women, 
Southern women came to lines outdoors on a daily basis at times with their written applications for clemency and pardon for participation in the Confederate war effort. After one year of this process, by May 1866, Johnson himself had personally signed 7,000 such pardons. He wanted to make them grovel, in other words. Not a wise policy, but a policy nonetheless. He did put in place, or tried, uh, some so-called Johnson governments. Now, instead of calling them Lincoln governments, they would be called Johnson governments. And the reason Johnson could get, a hold of, get away with this, of course, as you should know from reading, is that Congress went out of session in the summer of 1865 for months. They went out of session. And Johnson had largely a free hand to act. And did he ever. By December of 65, when a new Congress would reconvene in Washington, all the states and the former Confederacy except Texas had met the simplest of criteria, had written new state constitutions, had found except that Texas. who are loyal to form a new government, and in very tiny proportions in some places. In fact, there were no loyalty oaths. Even, even applied to people, all but one state, Texas, was ready for readmission to the Union under this, uh, what actually Foner calls it in his book, the amazing, quote, amazing leniency of Andrew Johnson. The only major demand put upon them was to formally nullify their act of secession. That's basically all they had to do. Now, these were whites-only governments. These were governments formed by former Confederates. And in many of these states, of course, they began to rapidly, in the late summer, early fall, 1865, pass what became quickly known as the Black Codes. You've actually got a portion of the Virginia Black Codes in the Gannap Reader. I, three or four of those laws are there in, in your reader. Read them with some care. These black codes mirrored the old slave codes. They explicitly denied the right to vote to blacks, the right to serve on juries, the right to hold office, the right to own property. There were all kinds of restrictive uh, uh, vagrancy laws passed, past laws passed, where blacks could be at any given point in time, with, with or without a pass. And in this newly reconstructed Johnson approach to these states, there was a great deal of legislation already flowing from some of these new state legislatures meant to directly obstruct the work of the Freedmen's Bureau. The counter-revolution folks began almost as soon as the war was over, as soon as ex-Confederates could find their way into power. And did they ever? They became Democrats. Part of what went on here in the Northern mind, now let's remember... The blood of the war is not entirely dry. But part of what was simply going on here in the northern mind is they witnessed this. And as these new states now sent their representatives and senators after fall elections back to Washington, some of them literally wearing their Confederate uniforms. And from Georgia came no less than as the new U.S. senator from Georgia, Alexander H. Stevens. 
A year ago, he was the vice president of the Confederacy, who had spent six months in a Charlestown jail in, in Massachusetts, Massachusetts, allegedly arrested for his treason against the United States, but released. So in other words, the Democrats groveled, gave their poverty, gave their apologies. And then they just snuck in their people that wanted the slaves as the new organized government. This is it. What you are seeing is exactly it. See, yeah, he's a little bit sleepy town. And that's <laughs> this is Yale. This is from 2008, a lecture on Yale, Uni at Yale University for law students. This is really important for people to pay attention. They took Lincoln out and then Johnson moved ahead. You know, they could have, like he said, just nullified their secession. But instead, he made them grovel so that they can realize what they've done wrong. But this caused this new government to be formed. Uh, a turncoat government. The ones that took on the face of the Democrats because they were black Republicans. Remember that Republicans were black. Democrats were those slave owners, right? Remember that? And remember the Democrats and the Republicans were part of the democratic, the Democrat Republican party after they abolished the Federalists, which was the original one. So this is history and it's important to know this. Now, why did I bring up this professor? Because professors have a way of uh, guiding people. Teachers do. Uh, you know, they do it all the time. A law professor that actually taught Merrick Garland said this. Had a sitting president try to, try to overthrow the government so that he could stay in power. And we've certainly never had one who, when investigated for that, basically wields power as though he were still president. And as though he is accountable to no one, you know, unless he is held accountable, our democracy is in grave danger because. So, so based on what we, anyway. yeah, let me just, let me just point out. So based on what we know now, Professor Tribe, do you believe the U.S. Justice Department will try to bring an indictment against the former president related to these events of January 6th? Well, I wish I knew, but Merrick Garland is a friend and a former student of mine. He's an honest man. He's serious. He said he'd go to the top if that's where the evidence points, and that's certainly where it's pointing now. And there's indication, certainly from the searches and seizures of, of both John Eastman and of, and of others, uh, strong evidence that the Justice Department is not stopping with the foot soldiers. It's going to the generals and the Biggest general of all, of course, is Donald Trump. I do yes. think the odds are he will be indicted. And you, so you think Merrick Garland, the attorney general of the United States, will indict the former president of the United States? If I had to guess, that would be my, my guess. guess. What are the main that hurdles should... right now, Professor Tribe, uh, to pursuing an actual indictment of Trump? If you were making a case against the former president, where would you be concerned? Well, I would be concerned, of course, with the possibility of a hung jury, someone who basically believes with Trump that he can do no wrong. But I would think that it would be worth having an indictment anyway. I certainly recognize that indicting a former president would generate lots of social heat, perhaps violence, but not indicting him 
would invite another violent insurrection. I would be weighing two terrible choices, but it's clear to me, if I were the Attorney General, which is worse. It is worse to say that a President of the United States can hold on to power, do whatever it takes in order to prevent the transition, the peaceful transition. If I were the Attorney General, which is worse. It is worse to say that a President of the United States can hold on to power, do whatever it takes in order to prevent the transition, the peaceful transition of power for the first time in our history. And I'm going to play that again because it's a very important phrase. And then you're going to go to www.impeach44.com and listen to this phrase again. Hold on to power violent insurrection. I would, I would be weighing, weighing two terrible choices, but it's clear to me if I were the Attorney General, which is worse, it is worse to say that a President of the United States can hold on to power, do whatever it takes in order to prevent the transition, the peaceful transition of power for the first time in our history and get away with it. Because once that has happened, democracy is at an end. I guess that's exactly the argument I will use. There was no peaceful transition of power from Barack Hussein Obama to President Trump. I had a conversation with a friend that some people like and some people don't. I really don't care. But he stated the obvious. It looks like this is a RICO case. How am I going to file RICO? How can I do that? How is it that I can, right? We can do it. We the people can do it. Because it turns out, you know, I, you know, God is amazing. You know, I, I, thinking about it just now, God is really amazing. He excises people that are dead weight, um, has you moving along when it's not necessary um, because it is something else. And um, I'll take it to this. So I've been trying to expedite my filing since May. And it's constant delay, delay, excuse, delay, excuse, delay, 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 eight weeks of this shit. And I'm like, all right, I really need to move forward. Because it was time sensitive for me because I was like, look, I know that Ohio is really going to fight it. Remember how I mentioned to you guys um, that they like denied the signature of my own campaign member, right? Well, they've managed to eliminate enough where I'm like literally in jeopardy of being on the ballot now for six signatures. So I'm fighting that too. <laughs> and um, they even, one county even said, oops, we accidentally deleted 16 of them, but we don't know how to correct it. So it is what it is. And it's like, uh, no, you need to fix it. That's the law. Yeah, there's no procedure for us decertifying what we certified and recertifying. So these 16 people just don't have their voices heard in tough shit. Seriously, that's what the conversation that I was having this morning. Um, this is why I delayed my show. We checked everything, um, you know, and this is why I was rushing. But, you know, some people just like to posture and pretend they're important rather than focus on really important things because, you know, 
Jesus. So having said that, they will fight in any way. Uh, Corruption is fine. We can get it down because we have over, you know, we have a couple hundred that they've erroneously deleted and some counties fix their petitions. Others are like, oh, there's no process. We don't know. And it's like, wait, what? Um, they can't do that. You know, your voice at the ballot box is important. That means, uh, you know, when you vote and when you petition for uh, candidates, for causes, for uh, bills to be heard, you know, this is a very important process. So due process is a problem, violation of, uh, you know, federal and state laws and constitution basically <laughs> is also a problem. So it's not a big deal for me uh, to obviously win that, but I'm showing you how they don't care. Evil does not care. Evil will drag their feet. Evil will tell you all these nice things. Evil will speak to you uh, accordingly as what you want to hear. Evil pets your ears and tells you how amazing you are, how extraordinary you are, how amazing they can help. You know, this is what's more important. Anything for delays. And this is moving along. Another thing is I found out my, um, my, my friend Carla got her official denial letters from the U.S. Air Force. So um, I believe the America Project is representing her on that. Uh, so, um, you know, uh, I'll speak to Patrick and seeing how uh, we could do that because I worked really hard on her case. Um, so we'll see. Uh, this will be it. Um, and unfortunately it's in hands that I had so, so yeah. So um that's happening. Um all of this is happening. Um I am um a little bit overwhelmed with every aspect that I have to do. I have to finish my filing, uh, which when putting all the evidence together, it's like Duh, this is Rico. And it's like, dude, how can I, how can I put that? Can I, can I actually do this? Can I, can I actually, um, get this done as Rico, a civil Rico case? Or should I pass it on to someone that I know can? So this is where we're at. We have, um, a lot of issues to take care of now. The indictment, they're going to push it. October surprises, man. Uh, you know, discussions we were having, you know, uh, with this morning was one thing. I think I even said it on air. You know, in Ohio, Joe Blystone was running for governor. And I told him, you're not going to win. The machines are rigged. But if you want to win, you got to be controversial. And you've got to really bring the heat on to the GOP and make them cry. He's a very level-headed man, a uh, businessman, right? And I was like, look, you know, if you walk in faith, you can wreck this place. Be my lieutenant governor. Let me run for governor and you be my lieutenant governor. And he laughed and I said, I don't care how many people you have come out vote for you, you're not going to win. They will rig the election because they're using those machines. And yes, that indeed happened. Every single person who they thought was to be elected was elected. Remember, Jim Renacci 
had um, Don Jr. come out for him and he didn't even get close to what DeWine got, right? So you have to think about it. They have spent a ton of money to make sure that their people, the Senate here had a ton of Senate people running and Congress. Only the GOP approved ones went, which tells you what. It sounds like the groveling of their application papers. You see what I'm trying to say? So when we, so when we see a rhino coming, it's a groveling of application paper. If the GOP has let them on the ticket, then boom, it's done. I know really good RICO attorneys. It's just, I have standing, they don't. That's the problem. So, um, bottom line is we need to stop these machines. Uh, Carrie Lake filed an amazing case in Arizona requesting a preliminary injunction to cease the allowance of using uh, the voting machines in Maricopa and Pima County, if I'm not mistaken, or is it the whole state of Arizona? I've been reading so much case law, I'm confused. So we have a lot going up. This week is going, it has already started as of last night to be a little bit insane. Congress is away. Biden's out to play. He's already making assertive statements about creating a law about abortion and making it a constitutional right. We have uh, the flip game going. You remember how they say, oh, no, 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 we flipped, right? This is where you're going to see the real Democrats come out from the right. And that's the thing. It's coming. It's coming hard. And this is going to be a problem for them because they don't have much of evidence in the ways of how they're going after the president. But it doesn't matter. They're still going to do it. And his words are very important. We cannot allow a president to do everything in their power to stop a peaceful transition. Barack Hussein Obama's administration did not give a national security uh, transfer of power. He didn't give the briefings because of the Russia hoax that they knew was a hoax, right? He also made sure that he had the benefit of putting the right people in office by rigging the elections. Tori, what? Wait till you see what I'm filing. That's why I said this is Rico. They all conspired. So they try to get him out using General Flynn. They try to get him out using Vice President Pence. They tried to get him out. I mean, Vice President Pence was discussing the 25th Amendment with all these clowns in the room, right? General Kelly tried it. Mattis tried it, right? Dana, uh, Dan Coates tried it. By the way, where's Dana Rockbacker? I would like to see that drive. You know, all of these things have occurred all these operations to infiltrate him. But thank goodness he had Dan Scavino by his side. You know, someone that looks up to him like a dad. So that's what's, uh, that's, that's where the trust is. But they did all of this. They did all of that to remove him from office and impeach him while he was in office and failed. Two impeachments and they failed.
And now they want to make sure that they can get rid of him completely. But in the process of them trying to get rid of him completely, they're giving us all the answers and avenues to prosecute the corrupt individuals that have served in office before President Trump even took office. An administration that refused to hand over power so much that he created a whole new fucking division so he can fuck with Americans for the rest of time. Oh, John, you think you're smart. Shit. You know, he's as dumb as they come, but he's sneaky. You know, you know, those kind of people that think they're smart, but they're really not smart. Right. Yeah. Those people. They think they're sneaky. They think they're smart, but they're sneaky. But, you know, I remember I recall that phone call on January 6th and Rice had had left the meeting and then Johnson pops in. I didn't know it was Johnson until freaking the, yesterday. And I was like, holy shit, that's him. So then I have to wonder why Johnson was there. I mean, Johnson was the one that refused to actually hand over uh, national security information from the Department of Homeland Security to President Trump's transition team. So there was no actual transition. Johnson was also nominated by Barack Hussein Obama to be his replacement. In any case, someone he died or disappeared or something that he would be president temporarily. So he was hidden as like the president during the transition time. So it was him that was on that call that I didn't recognize. And now saying, wow, how did I not know that, you know, the the former secretary of the Department of Homeland Security was on that phone call with Brennan Comey and Barack on January 6th? And what did they discuss? And what did he do where he was applauded when he was hidden in a basement in a bunker? And you know what? The funny thing is, is that they even mentioned the bunker on the call, right? And I totally missed it. You know, how's your bunker going? And, you know, it was more like, yeah, they're treating me well, you know. And I didn't put one and one together to be like, who is this tool? I just thought it was like maybe a staffer because he sounded so fucking remedial and it was a secretary. Oh, and now it makes sense because, yeah, we're putting out the announcement from the agency, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And thinking about it, I'm like, am I so dumb? How did I miss it? This was so well organized. I give him credit for that. But the thing is, the person deploying it is stupid. John Brennan's stupid. He's actually really dumb. But he's sneaky. (sighs) But he's sneaky. So that's basically it. He's sneaky. So sneaky that other people have to be sneaky. And then they have to eat crow on shit that they report. So here's Secret Service. Details tonight seeming to back up part of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony to the January 6th committee. Two Secret Service staffers now saying that for more than a year, stories have been circulating inside the agency about Trump's behavior before and on January 6th, including how an angry Donald Trump demanded to go to the Capitol with his supporters after his speech near the White House. And when the Secret Service said no, and Trump didn't get his way, he said he said to have berated his security detail, saying, according to these sources, something similar to I'm the effing president of the United States. You can't tell me what to do, which aligns with what Hutchinson said under oath that she was told. The president said something to the effect of I'm the effing president. Take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, 
we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. And was Mr. Engel in the room as Mr. Ornato told you this story? He was. Did Mr. Engel correct or disagree with any part of the story from Mr. Ornato? Mr. Engel did not correct or disagree with any part of the story. Did Mr. Engel or Mr. Ornato ever after that tell you that what Mr. Ornato had just said was untrue? Neither Mr. Ornato nor Mr. Engel told me ever that it was untrue. Now, while neither source says they heard about Trump trying to grab the steering wheel, they did say this, according to the according to our reporting. Nobody said Trump assaulted him. They said he tried to lunge over the seat. For what reason? Nobody had any idea. We're also learning new details about the attempts to influence Hutchinson's testimony. Multiple sources telling CNN someone on behalf of Mark Meadows contacted Hutchinson before she testified. And that is crucial because Hutchinson was one of his top aides. And we now know that both of the examples of potential witness intimidation presented during the hearing, both were directed at Hutchinson. And what was the message? Listen. This is a call received by one of our witnesses. Quote, a person let me know you have your deposition tomorrow. He wants me to let you know he's thinking about you. He knows you're loyal and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. Hutchinson did do the right thing. She testified under oath, which everyone agrees takes courage. You can't say the same, though, for Donald Trump or his allies, who've now launched a smear campaign against her. Manu Raju is out front live for us on Capitol Hill this evening. Manu, first, what else can you tell us about this call to Hutchinson that was allegedly done at the behest of her former boss, Mark Meadows? Yeah, we are learning that those two episodes that Liz Cheney described in vivid detail in the hearing about outreach to Hutchinson that suggests potential witness intimidation, both of those did go to Cassidy Hutchinson. They did not reveal the identity of the witness who received that. And we are also learning that this came from intermediary of Mark Meadows, then White House Chief of Staff. Uh, Now, in one of those messages uh, that Cheney uh, read aloud, she said that he knows you're 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 loyal and you're going to do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. Now, what we are, our colleagues uh, here at CNN are told is that the person that they're referring to there was Meadows. Meadows expected her to do, quote, the right thing. Now, Meadows' camp responded to this reporting saying that there was not, never an attempt to intimidate Hutchinson. They said, according to the spokesperson, Ben Williams said, no one from Meadows' camp himself or otherwise ever sought to intimidate or shape her conversations with the committee, but we do know, Kate, that this committee is still investigating this issue. They ask every witness who comes before them whether or not they have received any question efforts to intimidate or tamper with their testimony in any way. And we do also know that the committee is thinking about whether to refer any of these to the Justice Department for potential prosecution. So this still is a major issue they plan to investigate in the weeks ahead. Yeah, it's still an open-ended question on what's going to happen with this. And, and also, Manu, based on this new reporting about the Secret Service, 
What does this all mean for Trump aide Tony Ornato, who apparently is willing to testify and is also disputing this testimony from Hutchison? Yeah, it's unclear exactly what Ornato will say if he does agree to testify under oath. We've only heard from unnamed officials who say they dispute that he relayed the story to Cassidy Hutchinson to describing this altercation that allegedly occurred uh, on January 6th. But what this reporting does show is that this was a, an issue that was discussed on the by law enforcement, by Secret Service in the aftermath of January 6th. It was well known that there was an angry Donald Trump who who apparently wanted to go to the Capitol. And that is one of the key things that has not been disputed here is that Donald Trump wanted to go to the Capitol on January 6th, uh, the day as he knew that his supporters apparently were armed that day. That's what Cassidy Hutchinson said in her testimony. And one person who could corroborate a lot of these key details too, Kate, is Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel at the time, who has been subpoenaed by this committee, who we're told is willing to testify in some limited fashion, potentially behind the scenes, and also warned about Trump going to the Capitol, that it could open up to them to all sorts of potential criminal exposure. All right, Manu, thank you so much for that. Out front with me now is Ellie Honig, former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, and Jonathan Wackrow, a former Secret Service agent, and David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative journalist who's covered Donald Trump for more than 30 years. Ellie, so you have these two different Secret Service sources telling a very similar account to what Cassidy Hutchinson testified to about the SUV ride. How does this add to the picture? Okay, on the narrow question of did Donald Trump lash out inside that SUV, it really started out as a contest of credibility between Cassidy Hutchinson on one hand and Tony Ornato on the others. You had Hutchinson testifying under oath that I didn't see what happened, but Tony Ornato told me this story about Trump sort of having this tantrum and reaching for lunging for the steering wheel inside the SUV. You had Tony Ornato, not under oath, and through spokespeople saying no such thing ever happened, and she essentially made that up out of whole cloth. Well, now we're learning that a story that's substantially similar, not identical, but quite similar to what Cassidy Hutchinson said, has been circulating a well-known inside Secret Service. And that is strong corroboration for Cassidy Hutchinson. And Kate, if we zoom out one level, the key aspects of what Hutchinson testified to, that Trump knew that crowd was armed, that he pointed them towards the Capitol, that he desperately wanted to go to the Capitol, those remain uncontested and strongly corroborated. And Jonathan, as someone who knows all about the culture of the Secret Service yourself, if something like this did happen, I mean, how quickly would word travel within the agency? So listen, there's a, there's a saying inside of the Secret Service that there are no secrets within the Secret Service. And you know, to that point, something as you know, explosive as this would fly through the Secret Service uh, circles pretty quickly. But I mean, I think we have to just take a quick step back and go, does this surprise anybody? I mean, we, we all know that the president had the intent on January 6th to go to the U.S. Capitol. And once he was told, did anyone really expect that he wouldn't be angry? I mean, so I think that this is just confirming what everyone believes is that, you know, he, he was very angry on that day that he did not go up and join his supporters. But the point we have to look at is why did he not go? Why did the Secret Service say no? And the reason being is because they did a quick assessment, uh, a security assessment, could they bring the president up there? And the determination was no, that the threats were too elevated, that the likelihood was was high, that violence would uh, erupt and the consequences were too great. And that's why the Secret Service did not bring 
the president up to uh, the Capitol on that day. And because we well know that Donald Trump himself, according to this testimony, knew that there were weapons in the crowd and also did nothing to try to help and help and assist the law enforcement officers that were trying to protect the Capitol at that exact time. Trying to protect the Capitol. They're going to indict him no matter how weak it is. They own the courts. They own the system. And that's basically it. Now, in the meantime, while we take this really quick break, I want you to think about it. It's July 5th. In less than two months, they will be able to purge all evidence of wrongdoing. And we still have people playing with their vaginas. (sighs) We should be on top of this like yesterday. See you all in just a few. Down in the shower of the penitentiary Out by the oil fires of the refinery I've been ten years burning down the road Nowhere to run, I ain't got nowhere to go Born in the USA What does that even mean anymore? Right? They want to give people that weren't born in the USA rights to uh, vote. Right? We're having all of this panic occur. Right? They want to rewrite the Constitution to give people bodily autonomy over their own bodies for medical procedures, aside from vaccines, of course. That's what the left says. There should be an exclusion for vaccines. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Um, You know, we have them trying to ensure that President Trump doesn't get to hold any office again. And they are making documentaries. There is a documentary that they're going to make showing a side of things that we all know are false. All of it is false. It's garbage. Yet they're going to do it anyway, because that's what corrupt people do that want to maintain power. The transition of power was going from the government back to the people. That's something they did not want. And you may not like President Trump, but you should acknowledge what he represents. He represents you. The person outside of the club, well, close enough to the club because he had the money to buy anything he wanted and he could have bought anyone, right? But again, I want you to understand that all of these things all coming together at one time cause a chaos, but it's not that chaotic. You've got to be able to put yourself aside. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, you know where I see it? It's down to anger, resentment, and all of this. I'm, I've been praying all weekend to kind of cut the dead weight and say, you know, it's in your hands now. And it, I'm not doing this anymore because I really need to focus. The chaos comes when it wants to kerfuffle you, right? So you're not paying attention. 
So you're busy putting out stupid fires when the real one is getting ignored. That's what losers do. They focus on micromanaging than regular management, right? You need to focus on the prize. And that's, I was born in the USA. This is my country. I bleed red, white, and blue. And my nation has been under occupation for decades. And it has been apparent now, and we need to fix it. This is the right opportunity, the right time. And people just need to get on the same page. That's basically it. That's basically it. Vengeance is not mine. Vengeance is not yours. Right? It is someone else's. And you need to leave it. Let them do what they want to do. And you're going to say, what? Well, you can't stop them. You're not going to stop them. You're not going to stop them. I mean, Biden's, you know, secretary wants to put abortion clinics on federal lands. I kid you not. You're going to be paying for it when it's not a constitutional right. How do you put it on federal lands? I kid you not. This was actually a report. Take a listen. Oops. You can't listen because it's muted. Red states. Well, at first it seemed outlandish, but the idea of putting abortion clinics, clinics on, on federal, federal lands in red states is only gaining more traction as progressives like Elizabeth Warren and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are not letting up on the pressure on the White House to do something. And other Democrats are looking at potentially placing tent clinics in federal buildings and on parts of the 606 million acres managed by the Forest Service, Bureau of Land Management, Fish and Wildlife Service, and National Park Service, or even tribal lands. Senator Warren telling the Washington Post, quote, they could, up, they could put up tents, have trained per- personnel, and be there to help people who need it. It's time to declare a medical emergency. Take a listen to what Xavier Becerra, the Secretary of Health and Human Service Department, said on NBC News about the topic. I, I think we're continuing to explore everything that's out there. Uh, the, the difficulty is that simply because it's an idea doesn't mean it can go out into practice. And so what we want to make sure is we can put things out into practice because you have people who are right now in need of abortion care services. So we're going to do what we can to give people something as quickly as we can. Even if it may not be everything they like, we want to make sure we're providing everything we can. Now, to be clear, the head of the H. Hold on a second. Can we just think of something? Why are they treating this like such an emergency? Why are they running to put clinics in places? Why are they claiming it? Like how many babies do they kill a day? I'm just asking like a question, right? How many babies do they kill a day that they're so desperate that they want to pitch tents? I want you to think about that for a second. Why is this being treated like an emergency? Right? What, what's going on here? Something, something seems off. HHS said they are exploring this option. Quote, we want to make sure we can put things into practice. Indigenous people are saying, whoa, 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 hold up. Let's take a look at this Axios article. Representatives for some indigenous tribes say they have no plans whatsoever to set up abortion clinics on their land. And beyond that, they say they would take offense to any non-Native Americans, including progressives, telling them what to do. And the Democratic governor of New Mexico also wants the White House to look at abortion clinics on federal lands in her state, telling NPR she wants the federal government to force it on Native American land in states where abortion may soon be illegal or restricted. And the White House isn't all on the same page here, despite what HHS Secretary Becerra said. The White House press secretary earlier last week said it's a non-starter. Back to you. 
Christina Thompson in the newsroom with that story. Christina, thank you very much. Here with more is the House Oversight Government Reform Committee member, South Carolina Congresswoman Nancy Mace. Congresswoman, good morning to you. Welcome back to National Report. Thank you so much for taking the time. If I could just get your immediate reaction to that report we just heard. In your state of South Carolina, federal government owns about 4.6% of the state's total land. What do you think about these calls to put abortion clinics potentially on it? Well, I mean, the idea is just insane that some of our national forests or nationally protected land, you're going to put abortion clinics on them. I mean, this is the Roe v. Wade, overturning a Roe v. Wade was something that was seen for decades, even by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, even by Joe Biden, a number of others, even by Obama. Right. And so uh, the idea that that they're going to put this on federal land just goes to show you how crazy Joe Biden is. Uh, and his administration and the progressive left, they have lost their minds over something that doesn't happen in most countries. If you look at socialist Europe, uh, abortion is banned after 12 to 15 weeks on average, if, if you're even able to have an abortion in that country. And, uh, you know, what they're losing their minds over is, is, these, is the extremities here. And I think you'll have about half the states that have some restrictions on abortion, half the states won't have any restrictions at all. Uh, Congress has a role here if they want to place restrictions or no restrictions on abortion as well. Um, but because our country is so divided, it'll be very hard for progressives to get what they want, which is why they're looking at ways to work around the rule of law, work around the rule of the Supreme Court and put this on federal lands if that's the case. In your state of South Carolina, there's a law which will go into effect uh, restricting abortion starting around six weeks of pregnancy. We've heard from this administration and the president himself even openly call for a carve out of the filibuster uh, to potentially codify Roe, essentially ensuring a woman's access to abortion, making it legal to do so in all states across the country. What do you think about that calls? And do you see that taking place? It's hard to say. I think they might attempt it, but I doubt it will be successful. Obama had a supermajority. He had the Senate, he had the House, he had the presidency. He promised to codify Roe and, and he did not. And so they had the opportunity to do that. And now uh, I don't think they're going to be able to, to do what they want to do because it would require them to work together with Republicans. And Republicans are not going to go as far as the progressive left who want abortion for any reason up until Birth. And you've seen legislation in states like Virginia, where there was a delegate in Virginia just a few years ago trying to allow abortion up until the day of birth. And Virginia's uh, former governor as well has said some pretty crazy comments. So, um, you know, they're going to have to work with Republicans on it and Republicans are not going to go. They're not going to go there at the federal level, how far left the progressives want to be. I wanted to ask you about another Supreme Court ruling that we got last week. It has to do with the EPA essentially what sort of limitations they can set. Here's Senator, Senator Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren. She stopped by Seth Meyers. Well, we don't care about that ruling, but we're going to talk about something. Now, this evil that's happening, this insane push for abortions is happening, and they're suggesting Indian reservations. But here's where God inserted his big, mighty, and awesome foot. On the second to last day, right, of SCOTUS, they actually ruled 5-4 that Oklahoma and other states that have, uh, you know, Indian reservation, Indian country, right? They're literally allowed to have jurisdiction with the federal government over crimes committed. So basically, all these years, any crimes that were committed on a reservation were dealt with by the reservation, 
the federal government was not allowed to step in. So if they were loaning out their kid for sex, selling drugs, it would be up to the tribe to get shit done. Now, they do have people that work in law enforcement, regular law enforcement, that work on reservations. But, you know, the case of McGirt actually made that so that they can't prosecute. But that came, um, the conviction that happened came before the decision. Anyway, it turns out now that if there are any crimes that are happening on reservations, the federal government can actually intervene. And that hasn't happened before. So the tribe police, the tribe, the tribal courts, right, are now going to have a federal presence. So this is how the foot gets stepped in. So it's kind of interesting to see how that moves forward when it comes to abortion because it's Indian country. I don't know. Do, how do American Indians feel about abortion? And will they get some money to be allowed? And therefore, it's not an emergency service. It's a business. Um, and what money will they get? Will they get it from Planned Parenthood, private companies? How does that happen? See, these are questions. These are really big questions that need to be answered. Very, very big questions. <laughs> but on that note, today is a very somber day. Um, I don't want to get into the details. Um, we pray for those that are enemies. We pray for the people that are going to meet their maker. And, you know, it's not going to be very fun for them. And it's, it's, it, it actually makes my heart heavy. No matter how much bad someone did, you know what sucks? It's like it didn't have to be this way. It could have been different. You chose that path yourself. And, you know, for these people that have served our nation for all their life, really, most of them, it makes me sad. You know what also makes me sad is when I see news articles coming out parading around that this candidate in Texas raised like $11 million or the Ohio Senate president raised $874,000. What are they doing with this money? Because I don't even know that, you know, that Matt Huffman is, is running. I don't see any ads. I don't see this 800. Like who's getting this money? Because I'm definitely not seeing anything. Like why are people contributing so much money to these things? I'm not understanding. It's the, it's the weirdest thing ever. Did you know that Jim Jordan donated $13,000 to this guy? I kid you not. Oil and gas. This is just crazy stuff when you look at it. And his expenditures, get this, $470,000, so almost half of it has been sent to the Republican Senate Campaign Committee. 15000 to the country club, right? And then printing, bar and grill, you know, where you do events and stuff. Damn, so he's giving half of whatever he takes to the GOP. Basically, the GOP are pimps, right? They're pimps. It's, they're pimps. And you know what's funny? Get this. There was a person that was, holy shit, she's running for lieutenant governor. 
You guys need to look at this Greek chick running for lieutenant governor as a Democrat in California. Her name is Eleni Kunalakis. Look up the name Kunalakis and see where she was and what she was doing. $2.9 million. One of the highest raising for lieutenant governor or Senate in the nation. First one was Texas, and she comes in second with $2 million. $11 million for the lieutenant governor? Like, who's giving $11 million for someone to be lieutenant governor? This is pretty insane, if you ask me. Like, what is going on? Where's all this money going? What are we really paying for? What, why, why does the lieutenant governor of Texas need $11 million? Someone explain it to me where it makes sense. Where does that make sense? How is all this, where's all this money going? Now, like I said to the guy in Ohio, half of it is going to this Senate state, uh, the GOP Senate committee, which means it's going to the GOP. So basically they're pimps for politicians. How much money are you going to give me? We'll pimp your bitch out. Sounds like a pimp situation or is it me? Let's just think about it. Pimp situation or me? Literally buying their seats. Literally. Now, if you guys remember, it was Megan Kelly who was in at the Vatican and said that she broke the story saying she just found out that Pope Francis is resigning. Here's what Pope Francis came out a week later to say. Of shooting down rumors that he has any plans to resign due to his ongoing ailments. In an exclusive interview with Reuters, the Pope rejecting speculation that he has cancer, joking that his doctors never told him about it if he does. Now, there's been gossip about Pope Francis stepping down in August due to his new cardinals taking their positions, a new constitution taking effect, and a planned trip to Lachlan, a site associated with Pope Celestine, who resigned, not to mention his knee pain, which has sidelined him from several events. But the pontiff maintains that the knee pain is a minor issue that is only getting better. It's a ligament that became inflamed. And because I walked badly, and this walking badly moved a bone, a fracture. There. And that's the problem. The Pope says despite cancelling recent travel plans, he still expects to visit Canada later this month and hopes he can visit both Moscow and Kiev in the near future in an effort to negotiate some form of peace talks between the two sides. Now, when it comes to the recent decision by the Supreme Court in the United States to overrule the Roe v. Wade decision, the Pope says that he doesn't have the knowledge to speak on that decision from a judicial perspective, but condemned abortion as a practice. He said he respected the ruling and reiterated the Catholic Church's stance that life begins at conception. It's a human life. That's science. The moral question is whether it is right to take a human life to solve a problem. Indeed, is it right to hire a hitman to solve a problem? The Pope was also pressed on whether pro-choice politicians should receive communion, such as President Biden or House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who received the Eucharist at the Vatican just last week, despite her home bishop saying that he would not be granting her the Eucharist due to her pro-choice views. The Pope said that when the church or a bishop loses its pastoral nature, it causes a political problem, adding that's all he can say about that for the time being. Back to you. Hey, I'm Rob Finnerty. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this video, please. She took communion. You know, it was nice hearing the Pope say it. Is it okay to codify murder to solve a problem? That's a question that society will be confronted with very soon, and we're not talking about babies. See, the minute you say it's okay to take an unborn life and destroy it 
and take it away because you can. What stops you from taking away the old people that are a monetary burden? Oh, you lived your life. You're good. You could get terminated now. What is it? People need to be paying attention to the, to the consequences of decisions now. You might not see, but you will. I mean, she was denied top-up access at uh, the Vatican. We pray for her. I know she's done a lot, but we pray for her too because that's the right thing to do. People don't know, you know, she enjoyed the, f- the fruit of everything that she has done. But boy, the after is going to be a bitch. And the fall is going to be even bigger. And that's the problem. We're going to see a lot of these people fall. And you know, sometimes the devil, when you do evil, he blesses you, right? He gives you everything you need. And you're riding high in a train a week, a day, a month, a year, even five years. And then suddenly everything gets taken away in a heartbeat and you don't know what happened. And you're just like, what? And it's like, well, maybe you should have done that. See, that's how it works. It wants you to be as high as possible before it tears you down. It will take everything away from you. When that boomerang comes back, oh boy, it's going to be a problem. Really big problem. Now let's stay alive per se as human beings. God bless. Well, you can tell by the way I use my walk. I'm a woman's man. No time to talk. Music loud and women walk. Been kicked around since I was born. And nothing's gonna change the way we live. Cause we can always hate but never give. And now the things are changing for the worse. See, oh.